We are going to continue our series through the book of Jonah this morning, and our desire is that we as a church will have a greater understanding of God's heart for the nations, that will not only spur us into action, but to also cultivate a godly desire to see the lost come to know Christ. And in light of the Advent season, we should keep in mind that the book of Jonah ultimately points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, if you remember, Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh reminds us of the Lord's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, that not my will, but yours be done. And in chapter 2, Jonah's time in the belly of the fish was cited by Jesus himself in Matthew 12 as evidence that he himself will die and in the same way be buried for three days and three nights. And as we come to chapter 3 this morning, the repentance of Nineveh will serve as judgment against those who do not repent and turn to Christ. For Christ himself says in Matthew 12, 41, that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Before we jump into our text, I want to take a step back and consider the theme, the topic of spiritual awakenings and revival. And to put it very simply, spiritual awakening refers to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that awakens dead people to the reality of Jesus Christ. Pastor John Piper says that spiritual awakening is mainly about more and more people seeing and savoring the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, in this spiritual awakening, Christians and non-believers alike respond to the gospel in an unusual and immediate and powerful way. A revival, on the other hand, is focused on what the church goes through during a spiritual awakening. It's when God's Spirit is working in such powerful ways that the church, so to speak, comes alive, and Christians feel renewed, restored, and are even moved to repentance. Now, awakenings and revivals can happen anywhere, anytime, in any region, to a nation or a city, a group of churches, or to just an individual like you and me. It is the supernatural work of God to awaken dead souls to himself and revive sleepy, powerless Christians in a mighty way. It can be dramatic, or it could be subtle. It could take place over a decade or it might only last a few weeks or a few months. This is what's happening to the city of Nineveh in our text in Jonah chapter 3, where a major spiritual awakening is breaking out in a violent pagan city far from the nation of Israel. Now contrast what's going on in Nineveh to the prophet of God, who was in desperate need of revival but demonstrates no remorse remorse, or repentance of any kind. And therefore, this morning, as we come to this text, we must consider this simple question. How's our relationship with God? 
Is there growing joy and passion for God in our lives? Is there an ever-increasing awareness and sensitivity to sin and holiness? Is your life characterized by obedience and love? And if the answer is no, then you need a spiritual revival, much like the prophet Jonah. And that's what we're going to do today, to examine what happens in a spiritual awakening and how it's related to our lives. And if you look and examine every awakening or revival of any kind, usually you can find many different parts and aspects, but we want to boil down to what this text wants to highlight for us, which is you can find three important parts in any awakening and revival. Obedience, repentance, and mercy and grace. And that's what we're going to do this morning, to look at these three aspects of awakenings and revivals. And first, we're going to look at the obedience of Jonah, which is found in verses 1 to 4. Now, if you grew up um, in an Asian family, it's very likely that you were forced or encouraged or strongly urged to take up a certain kind of skill that would require extra rehearsal and lessons and practice time, be it piano or any sort of musical instrument, or perhaps it's just simply more uh, math homework, or perhaps it's debate team, or it's dance, or it's a sport. Whatever it is that requires extra practice and money and dedication, a lot of us have gone through that. And for many of us who are parents ourselves now, we are doing the same thing with our kids in hope that they would develop these passions and skills that would really not only build them up, but one day be useful, whether it's in society or in the church, by God, and will be beneficial to everyone. But the problem with that is we all know so personally well that at some point we hit a wall where we're no longer interested in what we're doing, and we don't have any urge or desire to continue in our practices and we're just sort of going through the motions, and we come to this point where we're wrestling with whether or not we want to continue. Because whatever we're doing is boring, it's pointless, it's expensive, it's costly, it's distracting me from something else that I'm interested in. And we are urged and encouraged and challenged to continue on, to continue in whatever it is we're doing, even if our heart's not in it at the moment. And that describes what the prophet Jonah is going through in chapter 3. What we find is from the rest of the book of Jonah that we realize that his problem is really a heart issue. That his heart was not in whatever God was commanding him to do. He is a reluctant, grudging prophet of God. He refused God's call and he ran the other way in chapter 1. He gave thanks to God in chapter 2 for his salvation. But we see no evidence for repentance for his refusal and disobedience in chapter 1. He does as he's told here in chapter 3. But next week, as we're going to see and find out in chapter 4, what we see is a callous, cold, disinterested heart in the things of the Lord. There's no grace. There's certainly no passion. There's no mercy or compassion in Jonah. And yet he's going through the motions here in chapter 3. He's used by God. He's obedient to an extent. 
And we find in verse 1 in our text this morning that God gives Jonah the same message as we saw in chapter 1. Go to Nineveh and deliver the message I gave you. And Jonah, as we see, does as he's told. He travels to Nineveh and in verse 4 delivers the shortest and arguably the greatest evangelistic sermon ever. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Five simple Hebrew words. We have no idea if Jonah was just yelling this message everywhere, if he was repeating this phrase over and over again, or was this just a one-time thing. But what we see and we grasp from the text is a picture of a prophet who's not only reluctant, but who's not interested in expending any more energy than what is required of him. There's no passion or conviction. There's no determination or will to expound and to persuade and to convince. He's just a vessel who does as he's commanded, no more. So if we look at the message itself, we recognize that this was a pronouncement of doom, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no mentioning of why. We don't have no idea from this text, technically, of who is going to overthrow Nineveh. Obviously, as readers, we understand this is God himself. But to the listeners, to the citizens of Nineveh, this proclamation of coming judgment, there's no mention of repentance. There's nothing mentioned about mercy or grace. To you and I, it could sound anything just like a sports prediction. Come playoff time, the Rockets are not going to be there. Perhaps, maybe. We don't know. So let's assume those five Hebrew words were all that God had commanded Jonah to say. Now in that light, chapter 3 is Jonah's best moment in the entire book. Because he was obedient, he was very effective, but if we take into account what happens in the rest of the book when we realize Jonah was at best grudgingly obedient and at worst forced to do God's will. So what does that mean for us, to you and I? God used a reluctant prophet to bring about great spiritual awakening in a great city. And I think it should bring to your mind and to mine the willing obedience of Jesus Christ. As we said, we remember at the beginning that as we go through the book of Jonah, we must constantly be thinking of how does this point to Christ because Jesus himself is constantly making references and comparison between the stories of Jonah to himself of what's going to happen to him. Remember how Jesus said that as Jonah is going, to, as Jonah was uh, surviving in the belly of the fish, so will himself be buried for three days and three nights. And just as the men of Nineveh are going to respond in a positive way to the declaration of doom, it's going to highlight how this generation are going to reject Christ and they will be judged by the men of Nineveh. And so we are meant to consider and contrast Jesus with Jonah. And we see the relevant and the reluctant prophet. He elevates the selfless, obedient son of God. 
And therefore, the question for us is not simply, are we walking in obedience to the Lord? But are we doing so wholeheartedly? Or are we doing it reluctantly? The difference between Jonah and Jesus is subtle but profound. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jonah essentially says, not my will, but whatever you want, God. Do what you want, O Lord. Jesus' prayer before the cross revealed that the Father's glory was his greatest desire, not just through obedience and action, but the submission and the obedience in the heart. To Jesus, it's not enough to simply do what God says, but he prays that God's desire, God's plan and will and heart will become his own. I want to not only do your will, O Lord, I also pray that I will think your thoughts and feel your emotions and make your will mine. That's ownership. That's complete obedience and submission. But Jonah does quite the opposite. He does his job, but he shows no desire to ask God's will to become his own. It's much like perhaps a pastor who's been in ministry for years, maybe decades, who has experienced God's saving power, who knows God's compassion for the nations, has committed God's word to memory, can utter beautiful, eloquent prayers, but he has no concern or compassion for the lost. Not only that, he makes no effort to cultivate and pray for more compassion and grace towards non-Christians. Isn't that a sad, sad picture? Listen, if God can use a stubborn, immature prophet like Jonah, he can use sinners like you and me. God demonstrates unbelievable patience to Jonah. And therefore, let us not keep on testing the Lord. Spiritual awakening usually begins with the revival of the church, and church revival starts with the obedience of individual followers of Jesus Christ. Simple obedience in the most basic things in life that Christ commands us to do. Let us not only seek to obey God in action and in service, in deeds and in words, but let's pray the Lord's Prayer that not my will, not my heart, not my selfish emotions, but yours be mine, be done in my life, in my heart, so that we think and feel and act duly and truly as God himself commands. Obedience is the first part, first aspect in any revival or spiritual awakening. Second thing is that we see obedience leads to, or is related to, is in some kind of relation to repentance. Well, we see this in verses 5 to 9 in the repentance of Nineveh in our text. If you're familiar with the church history, you may have heard of the great awakening that took place in the 18th century in this country, as well as in Great Britain. It was an unbelievable time that lasted 10 years long, at the very least, where God used famous men, preachers and pastors, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and the like, to preach the message of the gospel in public, out in the fields, in the church, in the streets, 
And for some reason, people were flocking and gathering to these messages, and they were bowing and crying out in repentance and saying, what more do I need to do? How can I respond? And what we saw in history as recorded by Christians and non-Christians alike, that huge numbers of non-believers were converted and were ushered into the church and became members. We saw Sunday nominal Christians and believers were transformed into growing disciples. The pastors and the clergy began to provide much better pastoral care. Sunday school was introduced for the first time during this period. The Awakening also launched a whole bunch of missions organizations, the establishment of all kinds of mission societies. It also spurred the followers of Jesus Christ to pursue justice. It was the Christians that launched the campaign to abolish slavery throughout the British Empire. Prison reform, feeding and clothing the poor, housing provided for widows and orphans, the movement towards free education for all people, all of these can trace their genesis to the Great Awakening. The relations between labor and management improved. There was reform of child labor laws. There's a huge increase in literacy throughout society. Why? Because the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, Men and women, old and young, were changed dramatically by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was working in such a dramatic, broad fashion. And it made sweeping changes to not only individual spiritual lives, but it made undeniable impact and changes to the society at large. That's what an awakening can do and has done throughout society. And that's what was going on in the city of Nineveh, in our text this morning. Now, what we see is upon hearing their pending doom, the entire city from king down to the average Joe believed the word of God and repented. They put on sackcloth, they fasted from food and drink, and they cried out to God for mercy. We see in an acute awareness of their sins, a recognition that they deserve judgment, and the need to change their heart and their ways. Listen to the king's decree in verses 8 and 9. He says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We all know from biblical backgrounds and history that the Assyrian Empire was feared and known for its cruel ways, for its violence, for the way it slaughters and murders and tortures. It was done for effect intentionally to maintain rule and order throughout the empire. I want you to consider what the prophet Nahum says about the sins of Nineveh, about 150 years after the time of Jonah. Listen to what God pronounces through Nahum against the city of Nineveh in chapter 3, 1 to 3 of the book of Nahum. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, 
heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. That's Nineveh. That's the Assyrian Empire. And Nineveh, as the capital of Assyria, shares responsibility in the corporate sin of its murdering armies. The people from King Andam probably celebrated this type of sin. But if you take a step back, and to be forensic and technical about this, it's not like everyone literally in the city of Nineveh, down to the youngest child, actually murdered and shed blood. And yet the king's call was for everyone, not only from old to young, but for every beast, animals, livestock, to put on sackcloth, to demonstrate repentance and sorrow, to repent for not only their personal evil ways and violence, but as a way to mourn for their corporate national sin. That's genuine repentance. A willingness to not only confess to your personal crimes and sins and your evil ways, but a desire to seek God's mercy for the guilt of an entire empire that you are part of, whose destiny you cannot so easily distangle from. My friends, dearly beloved, is there an increasing awareness and sensitivity to sin and holiness in your life? If we look at what's going on in the city of Nineveh in this moment, and you contrast that to what's going on in the prophet of Jonah, who are we meant to identify with? Obviously, we should be identifying with Jonah, but the problem is what's going on in his heart as we're going to see next week in chapter 4, is so often it happens to us in our daily lives that we go through the motions. Not only do we, not, do we not care, but worse, we simply have no compassion and no awareness of how we continually live in sin. And we're so acutely aware of what's wrong with others, but we demonstrate no remorse for our own. So isn't it ironical that it's in a pagan, violent city that we see true signs of repentance, and yet a prophet of God shows nothing of sort? What do you do when you're confronted by the word of the Lord? Do you move to, are you moved to confession? Is there humility, or do you immediately grow defensive? Is there genuine brokenness and a sincere effort to change your ways? If not, we need to pray for both obedience of the heart and in our actions, but also for a greater fear of the Lord. Because that's what we see in the city of Nineveh. This pronouncement of doom, as simple and direct and as unimpressive as it may be, brought the fear of God into the people's hearts and in their lives. We have lost that holy fear of the Lord. An appropriate fear of God reminds us to walk in holiness and reminds us the preciousness of what Christ did for us on the cross. His, the necessity of his sacrifice, of his death, and the depth 
of the love of God. And by being acutely aware of God's holiness and having a healthy fear of the Lord, it increases our desire to walk with him. And it reduces any attempt to excuse sin in our lives. And that occurs here at HCC and you and me. That's when we have a genuine, powerful revival. Imagine what God can do through a revived, passionate, holy, obedient church. And that leads us to the final aspect that's found in any awakening and any revival, personal or corporate. And that is the mercy and grace of God. In verse 10, we read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Earlier, Jonah's message, as we argued, was probably the most effective sermon ever. Five words that led to the repentance and conversion of an entire city. Now, why? Why? If we're going to consider all angles. Why would these people respond so dramatically and swiftly to Jonah's message? Was it because of eloquence? There's no sign of eloquence. Is it because these people were gullible, prone to superstitions, as we so often assume that the ancient people are like? Be reminded, the Assyrians dominated the Middle East And Nineveh was the capital of the superpower of its day. They had conquered nations, slaughtered thousands without batting an eye. You think they haven't heard curses before? You think they haven't witnessed people calling down judgment, condemnation from witches, sorcerers, and followers of pagan religions before? You think such a violent and powerful empire would be cowed, scared by five words of doom from a foreign prophet, from a mighty, in fact, the exact opposite, a small, unimpressive nation. The only plausible explanation why Nineveh trembled and repented is the supernatural work of God. There's no other plausible explanation. God was working mightily to save Nineveh. The mercy and grace of God not only is seen in how he does not bring down judgment and doom to this nation, to this city, but it's seen how he's working, preparing, and causing the entire city to be willing to repent at this message of judgment. God's mercy and grace was so generous and active that he poured out his spirit in Nineveh. He did so to spare them his holy wrath. Because God has a plan for Nineveh. With all of its hunger for power, for land, for wealth. As an instrument of God's judgment, God is going to use the Assyrians in about 30 to 40 years after Jonah to judge and destroy his own chosen people, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
So behind the grace and mercy of God is the justice and holiness of God at work here. This holy God had compassion on a violent, evil city, a people that he will one day use to destroy and judge his own covenant people. Oh, that's mind-blowing to us. This combination of holiness and mercy can only be found perfectly in God. Now, he's not trying to balance these two aspects of his character. He is absolutely holy and absolutely merciful and gracious. Now, how is this possible? And we see this in the Son of, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who is greater than Jonah. Because as effective as Jonah's message was, God alone has the power to change sinners' hearts. That's the only explanation to why Nineveh repented on such a massive scale. Jesus is the power of repentance. Jesus breaks the power of sin and gives us true repentance through the preaching and hearing of his word. Where can you and I find the strength to repent? Where do we find the grace to change our sinful ways? And that power is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So my friends, if you find yourself in a spiritual rut, if you find yourself just going through the motion, so to speak, for some time, and there's, there's no passion, there's no hunger, there's no interest, you, you find yourself just, you're just not doing, you're just going through the motions, there's nothing that's firing you up, you've lost that first love, and you don't know what to do. Cry out to God. Pray and ask him to renew your soul, to give you the power to change and to repent, to help you live in an obedience in heart and deed. Now, I don't know how soon God will respond to that, but he does and he will. When that happens, as we see in Jonah, partially, to the sinful, reluctant prophet, to the point where he was forcefully, grudgingly willing to at least obey God and deliver this message. Just through that little act of partial obedience, God was able to bring about an incredible awakening to an entire city. Imagine what God can do if you and I become passionately devoted to becoming a faithful, obedient disciple. Imagining us not testing God's patience or taking his grace for granted. What can God do in this city through a faithful, obedient church? An awakening, a revival. It starts here. It starts here for his glory. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Heavenly Father, would you speak to us once again this morning? Would you make your word effective and powerful to all our souls? Would you open our ears to hear the small, still voice of the Spirit? Would you open our eyes to our sin, to your holiness? Would you move us to repentance? 
Would you give us your grace and power so that we can change and grow? Father, oh, we long for a revival here at HCC. We pray and yearn and hunger for your spirit to be poured out in a fresh and new and meaningful way in our individual lives so that we are walking in complete obedience. Lord, move us, stir us, revive us. We are your people, and without you, we are lost. But with you, Lord, help this city, help our communities, help our friends and our relatives and our families to see your light. We pray in Jesus' name.